This episode of the Vincast is brought to you by Venus, an iPhone app which recognizes any wine bottle with just a snap of a photo in an effort to break down barriers for people to enjoy wine. Really simple app to use, guys. All you have to do is uh, download it through the App Store. When you've got a bottle of wine you're tasting, enjoying, and you want to keep a record of it or you want to share it with your friends, just take a photo of the label. The label goes up into a cloud and image recognition software recognizes what the wine is based on that label and then tells you what it is. So it's a great way to keep a record of wines you've enjoyed in the past, but in an effort to share it with uh, other wine lovers, friends, family, um, you can follow people that can follow you back, but it's also really excellent to uh, link in with other social networks like Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Everyone who uses uh, Venice is in Australia and New Zealand, so it means that the wines you are enjoying and your networks are enjoying are always going to be available. And it also gives you accurate real-time information about where you might be able to buy a wine you've enjoyed or would like to try, but also um, what you can expect to pay for it. If you do use Venice, I highly recommend following um, featured users like myself, wine professionals or other wine lovers. But the idea is just to have fun. So jump onto the iTunes store, download Venice and start snapping away. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scaresbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And here we are, episode 28. Um, I think I've been doing the podcast for over a year now. Um, I hope you've been enjoying some of the recent episodes with uh, such guests as Matthew Dukes uh, and uh, last week's episode with Sam Hooper talking about wine shows. Um, really would love to hear from uh, anyone listening um, any feedback, any questions you might have, um, what you thought about some of the topics and some of the discussions. Uh, I would love to make the uh, podcast a little bit more interactive. Uh, always appreciate people commenting on the, the blog or on Twitter uh, or particularly on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, and if you are there, I would love for you to subscribe uh, so you can get the, the newest episode downloaded straight away. And would also appreciate any rating or review you could leave for me. Now, for episode 28, um, I was joined by my very good friend, Owen Latter, who uh, is probably best known as the winemaker for Eastern Peak, which he took over from his father, Norman, some years ago. Uh, but Owen isn't just involved at Eastern Peak. He's also making wine for a number of other different projects. And uh, also he and his fiancée, Jen, uh, own uh, a lovely little wine shop and bar in Dalesford, where they now live called Wine and the Country. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about the background of Eastern Peak, but also his experiences as a winemaker and um, where he would like to take uh, all the projects he's working with into the future. So enjoy the episode and make sure to uh, get in touch with Owen as well. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Owen. No dramas, James. Um, Owen, you are obviously a multi-generational winemaker yourself. Um, what, what's your kind of the first memory of wine that you can remember that your, your first sort of interaction with wine? Uh, it's probably more to do with the vineyard because the vineyard was being planted as I was 
born. So, so that was by your dad or your parents? By my parents. My mum answered an advert in the local newspaper and a guy who put the advert in there had to be Trevor Mast of Mount Lang and Duran. When, when, you, when you say local, where, where were you living? Where, where did you well, grow up? They'd bought a property up near Ballarat uh-huh. in a little town called Kogels Creek. Uh-huh. There's not much going on there. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's all potato-based, or it was. Now it's grain and um, livestock but and small amount of vineyards. But, yeah, so they moved from the, uh, from the city. Cause that, being Melbourne? Yep. And Di was my mum's name's Diane. Old man's name is Norman. Yep. So they um, wanted to be self-sufficient farmers in the country and so they established a little property out there, planted the vineyard under guidance. And so, yeah, my first, I, I was just been in the vineyard ever since. So I'm 30 now and the vineyard's 31. So well, there you go. You so can you- say I don't haven't really known anything else. <laughs> yeah. Two of you have grown up together. Um, what kind of, why, why did they choose to plant vineyards and i mean if it's a self-sustaining farm they work with other agricultural products yeah it was kind of like a permaculture farm you can say lots of different stuff going on there okay but what so they milked their own cows they had a veggie patch it was, it's a small farm like yeah everyone else there had 100 acres plus yeah we had 20 so okay quite, quite small for sure. the land mass there and there's actually an issue where they weren't allowed to build a residence or a dwelling on the property because it was too small with town. Too plant. small. Yeah. So there's a bit of craftiness that went into that to try and get to, to build on the property because now sure. it's, it's fine. You can do whatever you like. But back then there was lots of challenges. So that's, that's how, how it was. But yeah, going back to the vineyard, um, what sort of guidance? This is through. It was the whole way Trevor? through. Like Trevor would come up and, say this is what you need to be doing uh-huh. this is how you plant it because he was looking for a the coldest site that you could possibly find in australia because he traveled and studied in germany sure and so he really knew what he was probably, after probably geisenheim yeah that's the that's where he was yeah so and he didn't speak any german but left speaking fluent german so oh, wow. he, yeah that's another story in itself <laughs> if only you could interview him yeah it is a shame unfortunately obviously he passed away a few years ago um and so the idea was to be growing grapes to provide to Mount Langyuran. Well, he had another label. So the whole idea of the vineyard was to find the best sparkling Pinot Noir in Australia. Right. So he made two different vintages of sparkling uh-huh. using our fruit. Sure. And then he bought Langy and it took uh, it from there. So there was a grey okay. label for all of his growers a long time ago. So there was a Ballarat Pinot back in the 80s and early 90s and that was our fruit. Oh, right. Okay. So he bought it up until 1993. And and then based on his kind of assessment of that cool side, did, did he did he find you or did, did you buy it for that purpose? Uh, yeah, so going back to that newspaper article, yeah, there was 50 applicants that applied to go and plant a vineyard in right. that, like all over Victoria. Okay. And it had to be Victorian. Yep. There was... Um, Five sites selected, mm-hmm. two sites were planted, and one was successful, and that was us. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's it's a pretty yeah, pretty risky thing because the olds they had no idea about growing grapevines. Sure. So they just wanted to plant it and grow grapes and sell them. And that particular that part it. of Victoria, if it yeah, at that time was the kind of the coldest site for viticulture in Australia. What is it that makes it so cold? 
Well, we we pick really late. We have really cold winters, uh-huh. so we always pick the end of April, even May. Okay. So some places in Tasmania are similar to that. Sure. And in the Macedon Ranges. Yeah. But most of Australia's other viticulture for Pinot Noir that's well and truly picked by March. But is it elevation, um, yep. the distance from from the coast, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, so inland. So well, great Pinot, you look at Burgundy, it's inland. Yeah. It's elevation. Yep. So we have 430 metres yep. where we are. And, of course, it's inland and it's quite cold. Particularly, like, I would think, being inland and, and without that sort of moderating influence of a large body of water, yep. um, the, the nighttime temperatures would be pretty, pretty low. Yeah, it drops way off. Sure. We are. And also, because it's part of the Great Dividing Range, like it, all the heat just rolls straight off into the valley below. Yeah, where okay. Creswick is. Okay. And it's yeah, like it's the same with frost too. We ne- we actually have never really been frosted where we are wow, that's... because of the site. It just rolls off the hill, and very fortunate because there's been some horror stories around with our neighbours, like only five kilometres down the road. Yeah. They've... Well, I remember back in the days when I would work in the Yarra Valley, particularly on the floor. Um, there were some pretty disastrous vintages that were sort of almost wiped out because of a frost. Um, and when, when the, so of, of course, based on Trevor's um, requirements, the, the decisions were made to plant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but what kind of choices were being made about how they were planted or how, how you're going to be working the vineyards? Um, were there any kind of philosophies or just sort of, oh, this is kind of what's going to work for us? They were all set up on, you know, it's just the 80s, so it was set up on Australian standards, just say three metre wide rows, and because that's what the tractor would fit down. Yep. And that's the whole reason why rows are that width. Okay. Well, where we are anyway. Um, uh, the Chardonnay, that, Trevor actually hated Chardonnay. So right. that was planted on Norm's own bat, because oh, okay. he wanted to see what would happen, and been told that's a good variety to plant, because... You got to think back, like that's early '90s as well. Like it was kind of on trend at that time, but sure. at the same time, no one really knew like where that was going to go as well. So it was, yeah, it was good that he chose that variety there. Sure, like, Riesling and Chenin Blanc would have been interesting too, but I guess that's up to me to plant in the future. <laughs> well, yeah. I think probably Chardonnay is certainly a, still a, a much safer bet. Um, Riesling and Chenin Blanc could certainly. Um, come back into fashion a little bit more um, but again if you if we're talking like you know the, the vineyard is now 30 years old um, if you're planting stuff now who knows what what the, the trends might be in 30 years time yeah well i just want to plant it because i know <laughs> that those varieties would probably work especially shannon because it's um like there is a similar sort of style you could say to the like the area of where we are is has a similar style to the loire okay still miles apart yeah like we never compare ourselves to burgundy or anywhere else sure because where we are is kogels creek and it'll always be kogels creek yeah but but it does provide similar acid structure and sort of similar tannins and stuff as well because of the climate we have a lot of people would think that those three varieties are the terroir translators yeah because like you know particularly in terms of minerality that you know you're driving from the soils you can't grow them anywhere (laughs) yeah but you can but in specific, very specific yeah, places. It depends what the style of wine you want. Um, and do you have sort of much memory early on about sort of being out in the vineyards and, and yeah, kind of having well, any affinity with it that? It was cheap labour for my parents, so that <laughs> was me out there. And most other like people who've been in those 
you know, situations where their parents have owned a vineyard have nothing to do with vineyards sure. later in life. Sure. They avoid it like the plague. And so you, uh, did you kind of know from a pretty um, early stage that you kind of wanted to, to, to follow in the in the career path and yeah. you know, continue the family tradition? Yeah. Well, look, it excites me to this day. Like I was out in the vineyard doing a pretty laborious, horrible job for like yeah. retraining vines. But, you know, that's the start where it all begins again. Sure. Because there's old vines there that need a bit of work. Yeah. So that's where I was. But, yeah, the winemaking is the major thing. Like going up to when I was a little kid, you'd probably say I was about five or six years old, the cellar hands up at Langy, like they would always be, you know, showing the kids like up there what what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this juice from this variety. Mm-hmm. You know, I can still remember those flavors and stuff now. It's, cool. It's quite bizarre, you know, but that's where it all came from. And was there a real sense of community um, with within, even though um, it's it's an area that doesn't have as much viticulture as some of the really established regions like the Yarra Valley or like the Barossa Valley? um was were you um within that community kind of with other kids of of winemakers yeah there's a huge fellowship so we were pretty close to everyone in the grampians yeah didn't really see much of the pyrenees guys even though they were so close sure um there's more grampians and you'd go up there and it was like an extended family up that way because you were this little vineyard in the middle of nowhere yeah and people wanted to know why you've planted there sure and you're investing in infrastructure locally and yeah it's pretty exciting but it's a little bit different these days i don't see that fellowship as round as much anymore it's sort of people are interested but at the same time you give them a bit of information and it goes a long way and doesn't come back around again right yeah so it's it's yeah it'll come around again because people are beginning to plant more vineyards Mm -hmm. again which is really exciting in Mm. places where and younger people also kind of getting involved and getting interested in, in they that. are yeah i think the australian wine industry was sort of a bit stale for 15 years mm. I, i'm not being arrogant or anything anyway but it just but sort of seemed was, like there wasn't the same, a lot going on because people were well it, it everything was, was already established in the same way that like if you look at for example the, the global financial crisis it's it's kind of made people have to rethink and try and do things a little bit differently as well and so i think there is kind of a, a, a new generation of, of um, people who want to work in the wine industry, both in terms of viticulture, winemaking, and then kind of the business and communication side. Um, they want to come in and sort of say, no, let's, let's bring in some fresh ideas and let's try and do things differently because the yeah. Australian wine industry was in a kind of a slump. Um, well, which, everyone was chasing was, those big styles. Yeah. But- and people now travelled and understood like what we used to do but that's was the, thing. the right way. <laughs> Consumers, you know, around the world kind of got a little bit tired of the same styles of wines that yeah. they perceived coming out of Australia. And, and, you know, and then, you know, obviously we had years and years of a glut of wine. Um, and so I think change is and, and will always be an inevitability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you were going to school, um, did you sort of learn anything to do with agriculture or winemaking at all? Yeah, I did like an agriculture course, which was all about just learning how to fix fences and ride motorbikes, right. <laughs> which is fun bike on an afternoon. Stuff, yeah. But yeah, like just coming home, what, what I learned at home was most important. Sure. Um, yeah. And I've been often uh, studied at university, but you know, a lot of that stuff there is mostly networking 
sure. learning a bit extra about why science works in a way that it does. Yeah. Having more of an understanding. Look, but, you know, I've had a number of winemakers who have studied it. Um, obviously, you know, the major universities, Charles Sturt and, and Adelaide, um, and they kind of felt that it gave them a, a framework. It's sort of, it's a top-down approach and sort of gives you the ability to work in the largest kind of winery you could possibly imagine to then kind of go, okay, well, now I know what 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 is out there now i'm going to work out what's right just for me yeah that's um so i was sort of a bit different because i'd grown up with a minimal intervention approach to winemaking okay so like trevor's approach was nothing which carried on to my my dad so he actually had to spend a bit of time trying to forget a lot of the science stuff even though he was very smart with the way he went about the scientific approach of winemaking just trevor yep yeah so he just always was like saying as a mentor to my father to say, you know, tread lightly on what you have. Once if you've got the best fruit somewhere, you don't have to do anything to it. Mm-hmm. So just but just be aware of certain things. So I've always had that approach, you know, don't add sulfur until it's been through malolactic fermentation. You don't need to filter, you don't have to fine. Mm-hmm. So everything should be there if if the season's been kind because you've got a great site. Um so for me going to university and already knowing that stuff and then they're training you to not have that stuff. Sure. It's, yeah, I, it was, it was all right for me, but seeing well, it's almost like else, a way for you to learn why you would choose not to do it. Yeah. And I, I already understood all that, but seeing everyone else going there and learning this stuff and now watching them having to try and forget mm. that stuff, like mm. move away from it big time because 10 years later. Yeah. And it's really interesting because everyone's now going this, this new approach, which is awesome. So yeah, right, of the consumer is getting better wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or certainly more authentic wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was your dad making the wine right from the beginning for, for, for himself? So we sold grapes up until uh, 1993. Uh-huh. Built a winery in 94. Yep. So the guys up there said, you know, we've, we made you plant this vineyard. Um, Shiraz is our direction up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we want to see you guys establish your own winery and go on your own journey yeah, but, and we'll support you in any way so sure. they gave us equipment they, like i don't think anyone would do what they did for us back then or you could probably pay a lot of money for to be consulted <laughs> that's right. but um they they really looked after us and you know, it was all on the job learning so dad for the 95 vintage was his first one that was the first commercial jumped, vintage yeah jumped straight in the deep end right we were actually allowed to buy back the 93 and 94 vintages from Langit to actually have stock to sell sure so we opened great. we had wines to sell uh-huh um so 95 was his first vintage and i still remember being in the back of the old yellow tarana or something which was dad's car back in the day yeah. going up to Langit to why is this doing this and they're like it's fine don't worry about oh, it wow. okay yeah, like all these bits and pieces because it's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Sure. And there's no one else nearby that could tell you anything. No. You'd have to go you know, and, an hour and, up the road. And no real viticultural tradition of any kind in that well, area. We were the first. Sure. Well, one, one of the first. Yeah. Um, so, so it was all just just let it be and see what happens, but okay. just, just keep asking questions. Yeah. So that was a good vintage. 96 was a very challenging vintage because it was cold and wet and 97 was the year he nailed it so it's when he really started working out what was going on that's a pretty good that's a pretty good track record though to sort of be able to you know you have one good one bad and then okay now i know exactly what what to do yeah 
well, 96, it rained and it didn't stop raining. And he mm-hmm. said, I don't want it to ever rain again. <laughs> and it didn't. So from 97 onwards, we had a drought. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Up until 2011. Sure. Yeah. So well, it was pretty dry. 2011 was, um, was pretty wet. And but uh, we, we irrigated for 15 years and uh-huh. we haven't irrigated for 15 years. So we've been dry growing. Is that is that uh, a conscious choice or is it? Yeah, we wanted to see the to. vines do their thing. Sure. So we've seen them heavily stressed where we probably should have irrigated. Yeah. Went to irrigate and our bore had actually dried up. So oh, we okay. Had, like excellent bore water. Sure. It was not there anymore. So uh-huh. that's we were just like, well, we'll have to sink a new bore and yeah. But then it rained, so we still haven't irrigated. Almost face is sort of um, <laughs> yeah. is is stuck, but I, not not, re- not needing to. I I love the idea of dry grown, and mm-hmm. I love seeing the wines out of it. But mm-hmm. from a commercial perspective, it's not really worthwhile because so it's risky. stress. It's pretty risky in Australia, especially in our climate, and especially last year when we had no rain from September until um, until March. It's a long time without a drop from the sky. Yeah. Yeah, fortunately, obviously, um, with the slightly cooler uh, climate and colder nighttime temperatures, yeah, it's it's going to mitigate it a little bit. You know, in the in the much warmer temperatures, you're basically just going to be cooking the fruit. Yeah, well, it's just bad for flowering because there was no moisture in the ground. Yeah, that too, and it was hot and dry winds. Everyone was the same boat. It's just you either had a good crop because you had some water and you got up at the right time. Yeah, or it was a pretty mixed bag. When was your unofficial or official sort of first vintage in terms of the winery? So I, um, in 1999, was the first time that I've always been involved in, you know, touching the grape, picking them, yep. being there, watching yep. them being processed. But uh, the old man, I'd come home from school and he'd fallen over, walked backwards over a muscle line by accident mm. and got concussion, mm. like severe concussion where he actually couldn't like look up or anything it was quite ill so he just said to me you know just do what you've seen and you'll have to do the rest of the vintage because no one else really knows what's going on yeah so that's where i jumped in the deep end so i'd you know go in do the plunging check everything as a kid at 15 years old yeah and then go to school have like red wine stains on my shirt (laughs) get in trouble from teachers have you been drinking it's like no i've been making it (laughs) Um, been working yeah been working um so yeah i had a bit of a influence on the 99 vintage all by chance sure. and from there on it just stemmed that this is what i want to do I set my path to that okay also sort of had its challenges being underage yeah yeah but but we won't tell anyone <laughs> yeah it's too late now yeah yeah so you could say i've been making wine for 15, 15 years mm-hmm. uh um, yeah, and then my first, all on my own. So we had a transition phase. I went to uni in 2002 mm-hmm. and I moved home after doing some other bits and pieces and moved home in the end of 2006. And we shared the 06 and the 07 vintage. And then pretty much from there on, it's been me, mm. the winery. And but that's still involved in some way? Uh, not really. He has muscular dystrophy. So he okay. sort of just says um what money i have to spend <laughs> can i buy this new piece of equipment no like, no <laughs> you'll figure it out yeah um have you had the opportunity to work vintages anywhere else yeah i've done like a few stints here and there at places um it's just that i, I don't get time to to go anywhere i'd love to go and do more in in europe 
but I'd like to go and do a little bit more in Burgundy. I really want to go down to um, the south of Italy, do something different down there. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's just my time's like running my own business with all those extra labels. Of course. But yeah, I've been, like I was meant to go and work in Bordeaux with a couple of friends at like a pretty big winery because in 2008, I worked at Yarraburn mm-hmm. in the Yarra Valley and that was pretty good. I met like lots of people who were actually going off to do the next vintage sure. in the Northern Hemisphere. So It's a little bit different, I guess, when particularly with um, with winemaking students or you know, young winemakers who probably uh, aren't from a wine family and who yeah. aren't kind of almost being groomed to take over eventually, but even some of them, I would think. Um, if you're having to kind of get a lot more involved in, in the winery, um, you don't have the luxury of being able to just sort of take a jaunt up to, yeah. up to well, Europe for, for the vintage, you know, one, two, three years in a row. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not there. Everything stops. Sure. So it's, it is what it is. But like I was meant to go to this place and my visa didn't work out. Oh, the Schengen okay. visa. It's just, I couldn't get it together in time. Probably my fault for being a bit disorganized. But mm. But that's fine. It sounds like a typical winemaker. Yeah, yeah, well, we're all the same. <laughs> uh, but I was very lucky. So I actually it worked out better looking back on my experience. So I traveled around for about three months, but I had a great mate, Alex Byrne, who's got another wine label called Burn Wines. Mm-hmm. Um, he was working in Gevry Charmaton for a guy called Pierre Najon. So I went there and did a bit of work for about a week mm-hmm. and got the gist of you know, what we were doing at our place was mm. pretty much what all Burgundians sort of really do. Yeah. You know, their okay. wax, concrete, well, not wax, but our concrete fermenters, you know, the way we approach with our whole bunch usage and, you know, wild yeast, you know, what you do and what you're looking at with fruit. So it's pretty interesting to see those similarities. And I was talking to the assistant winemaker there, well, trying to because I can't speak a lot of French at all. Mm. And I was pretty green back then, so... And he couldn't understand my thick accents, which I don't think is too thick, but over there it seemed quite thick. So he was shocked that I used all these principles and I was from Australia and I was of an age of like 20, I was like probably 24 or something mm. back then. Mm. So it was, yeah, it was really good that they said, well, that's awesome that you, you guys are actually doing that. And the sites is because Australian wine internationally is, you know, no one sees these little guys like us around. So, well, it kind of it really does. Um, it, it's it, it's it's amazing how much things have changed in Australia just in the last five years. Yeah. That, um, like a little bit more of the what I would kind of consider traditional techniques used in Europe have been embraced a lot more, particularly with the you know the smaller and younger kind of winemakers yeah. in Australia who may have had the opportunity to work vintages over in Europe. Just going back to our roots. Yeah, exactly. This is what everyone used to do, like yeah. pre-commercialization of wineries. You know, before there was stainless steel mm. and, and plastic containers and mm. all these other things you can buy in a packet. Machines. Yeah. There was, um, you know, it was all about the vineyard and whatever got you to the end was what was what it was. Yeah. So tell me about how the approach has evolved, I guess, since you kind of took on the reins um, to now. Um what 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 are sort of the the real key factors in terms of viticulture and then winemaking? Yeah, so with the viticulture, we like I'm in a process where I want to go 
biodynamic but not to be certified like it's it's a bit tough at the moment because i'm the only one that's there Mm -hmm. so hopefully looking forward into the future i can actually have someone work for me you know a couple of days a week and we can start implementing that because there'll be more time to spend in the vineyard but I'm not there as much, but what we do... So it's not simply, obviously, conversion across the biodynamics is not simply a question of just stopping spraying and, and, and you know, using chemicals and stuff like that. There are a lot, a lot of, a little bit more work in, in the vineyard. Would yeah. you sort of be looking at kind of planting a little bit closer as well? No, no. Just keep it as it is? Okay. Yeah. If I do another planting, it'll be the same row width. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's good that what people are doing, but, and you do get a good style, but I... Yeah, just from an infrastructure perspective, you've you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'll probably change my mind. Never eventually. say never. <laughs> yeah, you never say never. Yeah, I, like I love close planted vineyards, and there's a few that have gone in, but and there's one in what there's one in Ballarat that's close planted, and it produces great fruit from there. Sure. Yeah, but we'll just see for the time being. Okay. Yeah, but you know, practices in the vineyard, we've always. Like you could say it's an organic approach, but I don't actually believe in organics. Okay. It's a process. Sure. It's not a philosophy. Uh-huh. So, and it's people are just like, you can buy all the organic stuff off a shelf and you can say that you're organic okay. after the time to be certified. Whereas biodynamics, you've really got to live and breathe it. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I'd like to go that path because it's better for the vines. Mm. But looking at our vines... You know, we don't add any fertilizer to them. I do. I have made this stuff. It's it's like a fermented um, manure and molasses, strange thing that me and another guy had made together. So mm-hmm. I've been putting that out, and it takes about three years for it to start working. And I'm beginning to see a little bit of it working as well. Okay, but it seems like it's a quite a lot of effort to get it out there. Yeah, but we yeah we don't add. We've never added fertilizer to the vineyard. Great. Um, and we just spray with you know, copper and, and sulfur. Which is pretty standard. Pretty standard. With the seasons, well, look, I've only put one spray on this season and it, I'm way, way behind the eight ball on that. But I don't think it's going to need a lot this season so mm-hmm. far. Mm-hmm. It's nice and dry. There's not a lot of rain around and there's no humidity. So we might only get away with spraying four times. Yeah. Uh, but... In seasons where they're challenging, like 2011, 2012, we have used stuff which I don't like using, which mm. is synthetic products. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from a small business that solar relies on having a crop, you know, I'm glad that we put them out. Sure. Yeah. Which is what you've got to do. Yeah. yeah. And the wines look really good, but it's just, you know, it has been, the, the end product got there by using something that we haven't made or we haven't got I think, us over the line i think the important thing is is kind of transparency and, and actually sort of talking about it and, and being honest and saying Look, yeah this well, is what we did and, yeah. and it's not something we would have really loved to have done um but it was necessary for us to yeah. actually be able to come in with a viable crop and we feel that we've still you know produced wines that are representative of us they're a little bit different this vintage because of the vintage conditions yeah. nature of wine yeah. Whereas if you look at the what happens in the winery, it's like it's very hands off. So we've always made a choice to not use sulphur. Okay. We don't have refrigeration. Okay. We use the yeasts that are the indigenous yeasts in the in the vineyard. Because okay. We've now said that. As in, as in, 
they they come in with the fruit and then yes, the, they're on the, the fruit. The the wine just sort of well the the the, the juice just starts fermenting yep. spontaneously. Yeah. Well, look, after seeing the twenty years of watching the wine being made there, like we have used cultured yeast some some years mm-hmm. and a, a bit of a mix. So like it'd start fermenting and you'd you'd sprinkle a bit of yeast out of a packet on the top. Yeah. But now I've just like I don't do that at all really anymore. There's some wines that I do because I know that those vineyards, the yeasts are bad mm-hmm. in those vineyards and they mm-hmm. need cultured yeast. But generally with our place, you, like even the Chardonnay is wild fermented, like a whole lot. Rosé, even the Shiraz. Oh, okay. So we don't add sulfur or anything to those guys. So um, otherwise you kill off the good yeast that's there already. And we don't have to add acid ever. Because I wouldn't think so. There's naturally high in acidity yeah. where we are. So we pretty much... I just choose the amount of whole bunch that I'd like to use in the Pinots. Okay. And that's my winemaking trick. What about temperature control? <laughs> no temperature. We don't have refrigeration. So, so what, with the reds. So, what, where, so what, what kind of vessel are you actually fermenting in? So we have open concrete fermenters, which were designed by Trevor. Okay. Because Lange was set up on concrete fermenters. Because yep. the previous owners, the Frattens, were of concrete background. So they... Yeah, of course. Being Italian, there's lots of stuff. There was lots of very good concrete tanks up that way. Mm-hmm. And that's still, like, the laying is still made in concrete in the mm-hmm. new winery. But mm-hmm. where we are, yeah, there were small three-ton fermenters and they were paraffin waxed line because Australia's pH in concrete is not the same as what it is in France. No. There's an issue with Chapoutier and Heathcote a few years ago when they had all these concrete tanks made up for them. And, Locally. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And they were like... Why is uh what's going on here? Like all our acids are all over the place, and it's because there was no paraffin wax on them. Right. Which it's um an OHS nightmare to actually get it on there. But sure. It, so that's what we've always always had. So they it takes a long time for the grapes to heat up because you've got like this thermal mass there. Sure. And how th- like how thick are the walls of the uh, the concrete tank? Uh, about two and a half inches. Okay. On the front side, and because they're all next to each other, they're mm. probably about five inches thick in the middle. So, yeah. They so, take, that, so, that does a pretty good job of regulating temperature anyway. Yeah, it's, it's kind of constant. What we've all, it's, you know, occasionally you get one that might take off really quick because there's some crazy super yeast in there, which or natural super yeast, which mm. I discovered with the Nebbiolo from another vineyard this year that I was making. It just fermented like mad. Like, mm. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. But it took a long time to finish, which was really interesting. I think that might be a varietal thing, though. Probably is. I've never made it before. Sure. It's, That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good in, in barrel. But, yeah, like, so there's no temperature control because they take quite a while to heat up, quite a while to cool down. And we also seal them up and we do really long extended post-ferment. So it can be anywhere from four weeks to ten weeks with our Pinot. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the 2012 vintage was eight weeks. It's quite a long time sitting there mm. hanging out, but mm. I'm glad that I did it because that wine's drinking quite well at the moment from from that. Otherwise, it'd be too f- much fruit there, I think. And in terms of um, the the whites, the Chardonnay, for example, yep. are you sort of keeping that on lees for an extended period after the fermentation? Yeah, so it's always whole bunch pressed and then it settles out in tank overnight and then it's racked straight into barrels and then I just let it go. So I fill the barrels about three quarters. Uh-huh. Just let them go. Because the winery is pretty cool because we're in Ballarat. Sure, sure. So, yeah, sometimes, oh, you know, they might get up to about 20, oh, 22 degrees sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I've had one at 26, but 
it's not really a difference. It's just one barrel. Yeah. And you know, they, they all look pretty good. What, what varieties are you now working with with Eastern Peak? Are they the original sort of varieties? So, yeah, Eastern Peak has only got Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and we have a little bit of Syrah, which is planted over the back on our name as Vineyard, who planted vines for us 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So Shiraz is 10 years old, and it's a PT23 clone, mm-hmm. which is a really good Shiraz clone, and it's starting to come into its own right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Um, but you also make wines for other people and it's, yep. you know, there's a kind of community thing. I know like Appalachian Ballarat is something that you're involved with. What are some of the other projects you're kind of involved with as far as the winemaking? Yeah, it was the Appalachian Ballarat. It's a project that I started about four years ago, I think it was. So all these vineyards around Ballarat, like they're all about 20 years old and the owner's didn't know what to do with them or and things like that and Ballarat's not allowed to be a region it's quite small so there's not enough actual bulk of vineyards there or size and wineries for it to allow it, to be does it even belong to a geographic indicator we're just called western zone victoria right that's it okay. which is a pretty big sure area so but does, th- that, does that go all the way to the border with south goes, australia goes to henty yeah. far out yeah henty okay. grampians pyrenees okay and us yeah, so it's which is weird because like most people refer to it as Ballarat or as the Grand. Well, these days they do. Like everyone refers to it as Ballarat, but yeah. like it's taken a long time to get to that point, and people still say Ballarat is there wine there, or is it good? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> which point. is fair enough because it's so small. But this is my idea behind the label was to just stick it up to the you know to everyone to say you know this is our region. So I just decided to call it. Ballarat on the label. There's sure. nothing else. It's just called Appalachian Ballarat. So it's four vineyards from around there, three different soil types. I, I believe in single vineyard stuff big time to show it, but also want to show what the region's capable of. So, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's been going really well. And it's actually in the last year, it's really gained massive traction, mm-hmm. that label to people actually now think of Ballarat as somewhere where there's Pinot grown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah which is pretty cool. And actually locals now in Ballarat are actually drinking Pinot instead of Shiraz. Which that's, is, that's even better. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and you're about to launch a, Got another label. a new project, a yep. new, la- new label. So I, I love other varieties and just seeing what they can do. And I love Western Zone Victoria, so Pyrenees and Grampians. And I also like a little bit of what's happening in Macedon too. But... Macedon is sort of a bit the same as Ballarat. There's lots of little vineyards, but there also are a couple of big ones that get it over the wine and some icons as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a bit harder to get fruit out of Macedon because it's like everyone wants it because it's it's more planted out than Ballarat and it's the same sort of temperature. Okay. So, yeah, but Western Zone Victoria, like the new label is Latter. So, it's my last name. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just about all these sites that I've seen like working in other wineries, seeing these sites for quite a while now. And I've always wanted to do something with them, but it's like, why would I buy the fruit if I'm not going to do anything with it to sell it? But So 2010, I started buying some Sangiovese to muck around with for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, that's a bit too good for, for those guys. <laughs> they can have it, but I'm definitely going to buy the next vintage. And then the next vintage was 2011. So I was like, oh... 
I won't buy it just yet. I'll let those guys buy it again. Yeah. And then like 2012, I like jumped in and I thought, all right, I'm going to start buying up a bit of fruit here and I might launch a label. So I've been like playing around for, since then and it's taken quite a while to get there. Like the old man's like, when are you going to start selling this wine? You better mm. get it out there. Mm. So December, it's going to be launched. That's exciting. Yep. So Sangiovese? Sangiovese. Uh, there's a Shiraz. I had to buy the Shiraz because it's a great site for Shiraz. Sure. But I really wanted the Nebbiolo that's on the same vineyard. Okay. So, and we've known these guys for quite a long time. Their vineyard's 10 years old now, so it's really starting to come into a good zone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's all Pyrenees fruit. And the Sangiovese, where it comes from, has got Cabernet next to it as well. And the Cabernet... It's, Cabernet's very untrendy, but I just love that Cabernet that comes out of there. So I, I bought some of that. Mm-hmm. So that's looking very interesting at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a whole bunch in that, which is a bit of a no-no, but I think it's a bit of a yes. Mm. It's, it's going well. Cabernet, um, Franc, Cabernet Franc was a whole bunch. It can be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As long as, not, long not as you know, you've got ripe, ripe berries and uh, sorry, ripe seeds and ripe stalks. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a Pinot from Macedon and a Sauvignon Blanc from Macedon also from Munibel in the mm-hmm. Pyrenees. So, But you, you're basically just taking the same philosophies in terms of hands-off and... Yep, yeah. In the, in the winery. Yeah, yeah. So there's no sulfur used in these wines and like, there's a bit of, you know, whatever whole bunch you'd like to use. There's another wine that I've made that's a bit of a blend of... Um, it's got Eastern Peak Chardonnay, the Macedon Sauvignon Blanc, and there's a bit of Gewürz planted in our vineyard by accident mm-hmm. in the youngest block. And it's really aromatic. Like you can, the stalks are just like very lifted. It's, it's very unusual. I've never really had much to do with Gewürz, but yeah, this seems like it's some pretty strong Gewürz. Yeah. So I, I put that all into a barrel and I've made this like cluster contacts, very unusual blend, mm-hmm. which I'm look. it's only one barrel, but I'm, looking forward to getting it into bottle and getting it out there it's yeah, yeah i don't know what you'd call it it's a cluster contacts three varietal wine yeah it, it's it's certainly something you don't hear about that often yeah. if, it, if at all no I, i'm not sure i've heard of a, a wine being made like that but that's pretty exciting yeah and it's kind of paving the way for i i want to do this on a larger scale right so, but not massive but just uh, just enough mm-hmm Grow. Yeah, not one barrel, but maybe three. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Um, and you you live in Dalesford now, and um, yep. And you and your fiancé, Jen, uh, have a, a lovely little shop in town and, and, and wine bar as well, which is wine in the country. Yeah, keeps us pretty busy. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I made Jen move from Melbourne to the winery, and then we decided that we'd go and settle in Dalesford and yep. see what that was like because I had to be closer because I was commuting from Melbourne to the winery and I was just getting a bit burnt out in the last couple of years. So, yeah, Jen decided that she would leave her job that she was at and open a shop. And we walked past this shop a few times and it was been vacant for, for a long time. Mm. The guy just built it so he could have a, a mezzanine level that looks over the town. So, mm-hmm. But he was kind of wanting to get someone in there to start paying for you know, what he wanted there <laughs> yeah. by the look of it. So, yeah, she decided that that's what she was going to do and open this amazing little wine shop. So, I wrote a wine list for her, which I'd never done before. So yeah. I just picked all the things that I really liked drinking and 
the focus was Western Zone Victoria, yeah, which no one has really done before. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a bit of a daring moment, but I think it will work well. And to have some really interesting internationals as well to back it all up. And it's it's been great. She's doing very well over there. And it's good to show all these smaller producers that nobody's got any idea about. Yeah. Western Zone, Victoria. And like, you spend a bit of time in there as well. So, you know, I'm sure it must be great to be able to yeah. connect with the, the consumers, particularly, you know, the, the local and, and, you know, that sense of community, which kind of goes back to when you were growing up and there was that kind of... It is. And... You know, there's a fellowship with wine drinkers there that's it's very exciting like people are really interested like there is two other bottle shops in town mm. and people go there and buy whatever they want but they come to us because they want to have a, a chat and hear the story behind the yeah. producers and yeah sometimes they're in like these regulars in there or some tourists are in there and they're like they bought a bottle of wine and the actual producer will walk in as well yeah and introduce them to the producer and I can't believe it's all happening. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's it's really good to see that. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a, been a bit of a game changer sure. for everyone, as far as we can see. Now, yeah. I'm sure um, you know you're probably having a lot of Pinot in the shop, uh, as obviously Pinot is kind of the focus for uh, Eastern Peak, and uh, I can see a, a little bottle sitting over there on the table next to you. Yep. Um, is that something you were hoping to open up and show me? Yeah, we'll have a crack. So, um, obviously, people here, it's under screw cap. Yeah. Um, have these and people once been under screw cap for long? So, we started with cork, like everyone else, and we've um, we moved away from cork as quickly as we could. Mm-hmm. So, in 1998, we had shocking, shocking cork taint problem with, right. our, with a white wine which was a really good Chardonnay that was made. And Norm was like, we've got to change. We've got to find something else. And then there was a new product on the market called plastic, or well, the plastic corks. So mm, synthetic ones. No one knew anything about them in 1999. So we put some wines under those. Didn't work out. Found out that it actually takes the preservative out of the wine. So oh, fun. most of our, what well, the vintage that I actually made was bottled under corks, uh, under plastic corks. So, We've never seen any of it oh. <laughs> from there. There are some that were under cork, but they've all been sold. So if anyone hears this, I'd love to see something that I made. <laughs> it's a legacy one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 2000, we went back to cork for one year. Yeah. We had a great agent that said, you've got to have cork and got to change your label. So the label that you see now is the label that um, his name is Patrick Walsh. So he yeah, did some really good stuff for us relaunching again with eastern peak because everyone's like your labels are very 90s you need to need to be on the next wave for the y2k (laughs) get it all happening (laughs) have a crash so 2001 we were under screw cap and have been from there on okay everything like whites reds a whole lot as soon as you could change well we couldn't buy premium burgundy under screw cap Mm. or even burgundy you could buy riesling yep you could buy a riesling bottle but we're not in germany so we didn't do that Mm. So, um, this is a particular Pinot, like how many different Pinots are now being made out of the Eastern Peak label? So, we've always made Intrinsic. It didn't always used to be called Intrinsic, but in the early 2000s, we decided that we'd change it to Intrinsic, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what our core values are. Um, So, this is the 2013. It's not released until next year. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so 2012, we like I started to make other stuff and kept more blocks. There was three blocks of Pinot, and I kept one of them separate that's never been kept before. So that is the youngest vine, which we call Mount Block. Mm-hmm. So that's there's a separate one of that in 2012, mm-hmm. and the Walsh Block, which is where the Shiraz comes from is under the Eastern Peak called Walsh Block. There's never been a Pinot under that. It's always gone into the Appalachian. Yep. And I decided that I really wanted to show that site. So I just made a barrel of 50% whole bunch, mm-hmm. which is pretty intense, you know, <laughs> mm. especially 2012 vintage. So I kept that separate. And we always, in an exceptional year, we'll keep the old vine separate. And we call that OB Tewar. So 2010 was, um, there's been five of them produced. And 2013, there is a ridiculous amount of single barrel, <laughs> single stuff happening. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. That's so, very Burgundian. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I had to keep them separate. And it was the 30 years of the vineyard in 2013. Sure. So I thought, got, we've had the best crop we've ever had. I, I've, the vineyard looked amazing. Yeah. It was the first time I ever had a vintage seller hand help me out. So yeah. I could actually delegate a few tasks that were... So I could relieve a bit of stress off myself. Great. So someone else could do things for me. So we made nine different Pinots. So 2013. Yeah. Single barrel or double barrel stuff. And then the intrinsic. And it's the most intrinsic that we've produced in a long time. So, yeah. Well, this is um, it's really beautifully aromatic. It's... um, Yeah, it's come know, together it's, nicely. It, it's interesting for me because it's it's shown quite a bit of floral character, which is not necessarily something that I do see in uh, in local Pinot as yeah. often as I'd like to. Um, but you know, very bright, sort of crunchy berry notes as well. Yeah, and the colour and it's so bright as well. It is. It looks like it something's been done to it, but it's it's just is what it is. That's pretty much straight out the concrete vats into a barrel. It really creeps up on you, actually. It does. Yeah. It, 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 it looks initially quite light and lovely, you know, pure sort of fruit expression. And then all of a sudden you start to get a little bit more texture and it kind of builds as it goes back on the palate. Yeah. They're long wines. So, yeah, they just keep going and I can going. imagine them aging pretty well too. Well, yeah, we had the 30 years of Eastern Peak last November because that's when the vineyard was planted. And we opened back to 1987. We had quite a few guests down at the lake house to celebrate our our um, 30th birthday there very nice so yeah we opened up some bottles for all the guys that have been part of the winery and helped us out over the years and really good customers mm. so we the first wine was actually the sparkling that trevor had made for us it's a good and, place to start yeah so it was a <laughs> 1987 sparkling which i'd tasted a year earlier and i was very surprised that it was in such a great condition that it was mm. And on the night, it was it was stunning. Mm. Yeah. And right throughout the night, like there was an 88 Pinot. They're, they're all just, there's no bad wines. But Stacey Lee, who's the Somali at the Lake House, she actually said, I'm not going in the restaurant tonight. I'm going to go up to the function there and I'm going to pour wines. And she was just like, afterwards, she said, you know, there wasn't a lot of corked wines with all that stuff there. And they all looked pretty bright. And for you know, just to see all those over that time, it was pretty interesting. So... Yeah, it's, mm. they do sell her. Yeah. Well, here is to another 30 vintages for Eastern <laughs> Peak and for you. 
Uh, Owen, how, thank you very much for joining me. Um, how? Give me all the um, the ways people can contact. Give me all the the social medias and websites and stuff like that. So we'll start off Eastern Peak. Yeah, Eastern Peak is easternpeak.com.au. That's our website. There's yep. an Instagram account, which is just Eastern Peak. Yep. That's probably my most active sort of social media thing. And it's I, you, I take, yourself. It's me, myself. <laughs> I take photos. I don't really talk a lot. There is a Twitter and a Facebook, but they're just there. I don't, I'm not very active on those. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you're busy enough already. Yeah. Um, anything for Appalachian Ballarat or you, you, you might do something with there's a web. Yeah, there's a website for Appalachian Ballarat and a Twitter account as well. Also, that's all me, but that's not very active either. Mm-hmm. And then the latter label to be launched, that will be quite active, I'd say. I'm looking forward to getting out of the way, having and, a bit of fun. And Wine in the Country, which is, is Jen. Yeah, yeah. So, Wine in the Country, very active on Facebook. And there's a great website as well. So, you can go on there and have a look at the wines that we have on offer, which is there's quite a few very interesting ones that people would know from mm-hmm. Western Victoria and lots that people would have no idea that why that wine is there. Well, absolutely. So. If you are uh, up in Dalesford, I do highly recommend personally um popping into one of the countries saying hi to jen or uh, to owen whoever's there um and you've um you're releasing some wine soon i think um which are going to be available in lots of lovely shops definitely down in melbourne and hopefully some yeah. good restaurants and bars as well yeah i'm sure that um our great friend james broadway will be have his finger on the pulse? Yes. Probably one, one, one safe bet is always going to be Goethe Street Anateka in yeah. uh, in Fitzroy. But uh, thanks again, Owen, and looking forward to trying some more wines as they get released. No dramas, James. Thank you. Uh, guys, as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can follow myself on Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino. Uh, jump onto my website, intrepidwino.com, um, where you can um, listen to all the podcasts and there's got lots of links uh, and also some other stuff I've written in the past. Um, I really do recommend highly people jump onto iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to the podcast. That's the best way to um, keeping up to date with all the new episodes. Uh, you can download them there. And whilst you're there, do please rate and review. It does help me out. Uh, as always, looking forward to getting more feedback, um, any questions you might have, um, and supporting all of the guests who generously donate their time. But until next time, bye.